You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where it's the third issue of a new character, so it's time for the obligatory cameo. And I'll get you back when Grant Morrison writes our book, Issue of Just From the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. I keep missing up issue and episode. It's an episode of the podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters we're going to be covering in this issue. Issue sode? Uh, Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. First up, we've got Kyle Rayner in issue 53 of Green Lantern, where Mongol, who you might remember remember from issue 46 of Green Lantern, had a real mad on for the Green Lantern character, and he's planning on taking it out on Green Lantern. However, this isn't the same Green Lantern that basically took Mongol down. This is an untried, untested, and pretty wet behind the ears Green Lantern, and hopefully he'll be able to do it. But I expect he will, because he'll be getting a little help from the Man of Steel himself, Superman. Who, of course, has to show up when any new character's third issue to make sure that they're happy in the DC Universe and that they know about the uh, benefit plan. Thankfully, Star Labs has better coverage than Kaiser. Of course, we're also going to be covering an issue of Guy Gardner Warrior, where Guy Gardner finally takes his turn into the Nazi-punching man of action that we've all loved him to be. Bo Smith takes Kai out of the cosmic root and puts him in with a band of hairy, beer-swigging, ass-kicking stereotypes that make the book such a fun read. Sadly, it'll be negated here in a few issues with Tattooed Guy and Big Guns. No, we can't have the man of action that we wanted to have. We've got to have big guns. It's the 90s, Jake. It's the 90s. Thank you, Thomas TJ, for that phrase. And thank you again, Thomas TJ, for showing up in the past uh, couple episodes. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and throw in a couple of promos here before I get to the issues. And when I get back from that, we will start on our coverage of Green Lantern number 53. So enjoy the promos. I'm going to get a drink, and I'll see you on the other side. Get this show on the road, gang. These freaks are dedicated, hard-working people. I'm Batman. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. This looks like a job for Superman. 
the Rocketeer! Gentlemen, you're up. <laughs> Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Well, hello there. I'm J. David Weeder. You may know me from the internet. Come in. Enjoy my palatial Arctic estate. Ah, I see you noticed the smell of mahogany and my hardback archive and showcase editions. Yeah, I do all right for myself. Listen, why don't you get cozy here with me on my titano skin rug while Motello mixes us up a drinky drink. Motello, soda cola martini, shaken. Look, I want you to come with me to a place. A place where it's only you and me and the Man of Steel, maybe Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane? Wait, wait, where are you going? No, this isn't me coming on to you. This is a podcast promo. What I'm trying to propose is joining me weekly like Clark Kent did when he threw the green crystal into the water and saw Marlon Brando's giant head appear, only in podcast form and my head just won't even be visible because it is an audio medium. Once a week, delve into the world of Superman with me on Superman Forever Radio. Look at comics, toy lines, TV series, characters, creators, anything and everything connected to the Man of Steel. Every Sunday at supermanforever.com, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Superman Forever Radio, fighting for truth and justice forever. That's supermanforever.com. See, I didn't mean what you thought I meant. It's all good. And yes, this is a new glowing white Kryptonian robe. Thank you so much for noticing. And yes, that is Lori Lamaris lounging by the pool. Don't tell her, but we're having smoked salmon for dinner and she takes it very personally. And you know who can't take a joke? Terra Man. You get one Glue Factory reference and he's up in arms. Superman Forever Radio. Keeping J. David Weeder off the streets so you don't have to. And we're back. And as you can kind of tell, my voice still isn't back to 100%, but it's doing a lot better from last week. Actually, it's doing a lot better from just a couple of days ago when I recorded episode 52, but uh, wibbly-wobbly, timely-wimey, I need to catch up because I had a couple of weeks off, but uh, it's doing better, and hopefully it's not as annoying as I think it sounds. And we're going to test how annoying I think it sounds by reading some of your folks' wonderful, wonderful email that you've sent in. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and our first email comes from a listener of the show, an awesome guy all around, Mr. Scott Davis. Scott writes in saying, Thanks, Sean. And he's replying to me, directing him toward a series of interviews that uh, a site did with Gerard Jones about his run with the Commander book. He continues saying, That interview was excellent. There were some interesting quotes, quote-unquote, Ultimately, Green Lantern was the biggest frustration of my entire writing career, end quote. And, quote, Mosaic was canceled because it was too odd, because it was so odd for the DC Universe aesthetic, end quote. I have to agree on both parts. Um, Mosaic was kind of out there. And, yeah, Green Lantern just kind of got ripped, I think, by editorial. You've heard about that over the past couple of episodes. Scott continues, who knows, maybe one day a new GL writer will reference the Mosaic City and resolve what happened to it. I certainly hope so. It was a good story arc and it needs to be resolved in one way or another. Scott continues, I read a big chunk of issues from 18 to 25. There were some good and some bad. Number 18, good issue with Guy fighting Goldface. I had a problem with one part of the story though. When Guy gets thrown from the roller coaster, you can see people go flying into the air, and there definitely would have been some deaths. But when Coldface questions Guy by asking who will look after the innocent, Guy responds by saying, let their insurance companies worry about it. This doesn't sound like how a proper GL should act. Overall, it was a nice issue, and Nort saving the day was great. Agreed, Scott. Uh, I can probably attribute that to Guy just not thinking properly. He wanted to take on Goldface, and unfortunately, he wasn't being a GL at the time. In fact, in the issue, both Carrie Limbo and General Glory seem to think that Guy might be going a bit off the hook. Uh, continuing on, 
issue 19, interesting issue with the ghost of Alan Scott. Dobie Dickles, and he wrote it Dobie Dickles, but I'm certain he meant to say Dobie Dickles, although there was that joke in the episode as well. Uh, said it was a bit hard to take, though. I had to reread Chapter 4 a few times to understand the Yalin Kerr story, but I think I figured it out. As far as turning Alan Scott gay, I think you summed it up pretty nicely. This was a publicity stunt with more than anything. I gave birth to a shot in the new 52, but I dropped it a few months ago. The publicity stunt is over, and Alan Scott's history suffers because of it. Well, I'm saddened to see that that's the case. Um, like I said before when we were doing this issue, I wasn't upset that Alan Scott turned gay or was written as gay. I was upset at the reason behind it. The fact that he was a character that has a long history and that they just decided to change this for what seemed like a publicity stunt just upset me and really negated the fact that he was an interesting character in his own right. And plus the fact that he had a son that was gay and they could have dealt with that character and didn't want to just frustrated me even more. It was... It just seemed like political correctness for the sake of political correctness, and I wasn't having any of it. Back to the email, number twenty, I th- or number twenty. And speaking of gay characters, <laughs> Flicker is one that doesn't get as much attention as Alan Scott. The high, the high heels on the last page is hilarious. Is this part one of five? I wonder if Flicker makes it through this arc. And yes, he does. And I don't know if Flicker necessarily is gay, but his costume is definitely flamboyant. Maybe he's just very... Maybe he's just Liberace. Wait, no, I guess Liberace is gay. Back to the letter, uh, number 22. I think AA is pronounced AA, not AA, as in Alcoholics Anonymous. When I saw this character the first time, I assumed it was in response to the Emerald Dawn 1-2 stories. It makes sense. Yeah, that's a good reference. I've never seen a pronunciation guide for the character, so I'll just take your word for it. Number 22. Something went wrong here. AA is female? This is a mistake. In the last issue, AA was a muscular male with no shirt on. Now, in this issue, AA is a muscular male with a Green Lantern uniform on, but they refer to him slash her as a female. Something seriously got lost in translation between Jones and Brodick on this one. Weird. Well, Scott, I think I can explain that. In a bunch of the uh, books, in fact, uh, reading uh, the Trinity storyline, we come to a character from the Legion named Strata, who, for all intents and purposes, looks masculine, looks male, but is also considered a female. It's a subcategory of these sort of rock-based monsters, or not really monsters, rock-based characters that seem to sort of blur the gender lines. I don't know if they're going this for social commentary or what, but it's just what they seem to do. Um, Aa, female. Brick, female. This character, Strata, female. Aa and Brick, or Aa and Strata, both look masculine. It's odd. Going back, twenty part, number 23, part 4 of this arc continues. It's starting to feel a bit long. The cover shows John fighting Star Sapphire, but only the last page does John show up. Flicker continues to struggle with power. I have a feeling it's not going to end well. Number 24. After all this, Flicker gets one punch to the ground. That's it? Yeah, Scott. That's it. I hope he makes another appearance in subsequent issues to get some revenge. That was a disappointing way to go out. Well, you'll see him back. Probably not the best return, but he'll be back. The story takes a weird turn that kind of took me out of the story. Star Sapphire has a sword at John's neck, but the Geals take off to save a ship. And then when they come back, Star Sapphire just left. It feels like Jones is scrambling to end this arc. Nort finally makes it to Oa, but it's too bad Jones didn't write him in this issue five in this five issue arc. Nort would have added some much needed comedy relief. Yeah, it did kind of seem that Jones was spinning his wheel on this series of issues, but it did introduce Flicker, so there is that. 
episode number 25, or issue number 25, this was a great issue. The Guy vs. Hal standoff was awesome. It is too bad Guy ends up losing a fight, but then again, if he won, we wouldn't have gotten Guy Gardner Warrior series that I'm looking forward to reading. Keep up the great work, Scott. I agree. It is disappointing that in issue 25, Guy had to give over the ring, but it did lead to the Warrior series, and it did lead to the Guy Gardner Reborn storyline, which I really enjoyed. So, I'm upset that he lost. I understand that they need to bring Hal back in the forefront, but I'm glad at what it did. It's it's kind of like how we addressed issue 50, but I didn't really like what happened to Hal, but I did like the outcome of it in bringing Kyle into the book. But thank you again, Scott, for writing in. I've got another letter from Professor Allen, but it's specifically for an issue that we're going to be covering in a couple of weeks. So I will make sure to save Professor Allen's email till then. But again, thank you all for writing in. If you'd like to write in, the email address for the show is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. That'll be at the end tag of the show if you uh, want to listen all the way through. Which, despite my voice, I hope you'd want to do. And to test your resolve a bit more... Let's go ahead and start with our coverage of Green Lantern number 53, which had a cover date of June, I'm sorry, July 1994 and a release date of May 24th, 1994. Cover price was $1.50 US, 2 bucks Canada, and 70p UK. The title was Rematch. Writer was Ron Mars, penciler Daryl Banks, inker Romeo Tangal, colorist Steve Matson, letterer Albert Guzman, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, editor Kevin Dooley. Preparing to make its killing blow, supervillain Mongol demands that Green Lantern wake up so that he can fully experience his own demise. But that will have to wait for a while, as the jaundiced giant gets a punch in the face from none other than the Man of Steel, Superman. Freed from the tyrant's grip, Kyle is approached by his concerned girlfriend, who wonders if he was alright. Kyle replies that he's okay, and goes off to help the reborn Kryptonian tackle the rampaging Mongol. The newest Green Lantern gets a good hit in on the film, but gets smacked down into the ocean in return. Superman and Mongo exchange blows as a terrified Alex watches Kyle's body sink below the waves. Things are looking grim until a green glow emerges in the water, and Green Lantern bursts forth and rams into Mongol, knocking him into the sand. Mongol recovers, grabs the throat of the young hero, and prepares to end his life until Superman lays the golden Goliath out with a single punch. Superman helps Kyle up, and the two try and introduce themselves, but are quickly interrupted by a recovered Mongol. Kyle blasts the tyrant with a spray of sand, which Superman fuses into a glass cocoon with his heat vision. It was a good idea for a prison, but Mongol is just too strong to be stopped, and easily breaks free. Mongol prepares to blast the youthful lantern with a beam of yellow energy, but Kyle is able to shield himself with a ring construct shield, surprising both the villain and Superman. Kyle remarks that the only thing that gives him a problem is when his concentration is broken, which Mongol immediately does. Saying that this might not be the best time for introspection, Superman blasts away at Mongol as things are starting to look dire. But Kyle has a little idea as he ring constructs up a speeding train and slams it into his foe, knocking him out. Crisis averted, Kyle revels in his victory while Superman admits that he's impressed by this new lantern. The two shake hands, exchange info, and the Man of Steel takes Mongol to a place where there won't be any chance of him getting free, all the while telling Green Lantern to look him up the next time he's in Metropolis. And as Superman flies away, Kyle and Alex contemplate their future as both a couple and a hero. Meanwhile, in the shadowy government office building from last issue, Agent Smith, that's probably not his name, but he's the kind of suit who wears dark sunglasses indoors for no reason, is looking over the piece of metal he, quote-unquote, acquired from the bump last issue. He tells a shadowy figure sitting opposite his desk that this is a matter of national security, and asks if his time in prison hasn't softened. The figure responds by absorbing the bullet fired at him by the shadowy agent standing behind him, and subsequently crushing the gun in his hand. Satisfied that he's the right man for the job, Agent Smith slides a dossier on the ring bearer and his girlfriend. Alexandra DeWitt across the table to the man who will track them down. Major Force.
Well, as for notes for the issue, it's pretty much a big punchy-punchy run-run issue, except for the appearance of Superman, who seems to show up, uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, in everyone's third issue to say hi and make sure that they're a good person and just give them the general thumbs up for being in their own book. However, this time around, Superman's appearance isn't as cliched. He definitely has dealings with the Mongol, not only in the whole war world, and if you want to go before that, for the man who has everything storyline, but he also has dealings with uh, Green Lantern at the end of the reign of the Superman. So it's nice that they're bringing Superman in, not only to help Kyle out and sort of give him a, well, not really an ego boost, but a feeling of self-confidence, but also to help resolve the storyline that was set forth in Green Lantern number 46. So, good on that they're keeping continuity from the previous issues there. However, there are some negatives, and most of those in this issue come from the art. Mongol looks really wonky, and I think the fact that we've got three artists on the book drawing it means that there's, again, not the cohesiveness that we would have once we got to just Daryl Banks being the main artist on the book. So, at times, Mongol looks a bit off. Sometimes he'll look like he's got a really tiny head. Sometimes his body will be varying sizes. It's just all just all over the place. But we'll go ahead and get into notes on the issue, starting off with the cover, which is a decent cover. But, sadly enough, none of this fight takes place in the city. It's all out on that sand dune where Kyle and uh, Alex were practicing using the ring. So it all doesn't really make sense that there's a cityscape in the background, but there you go. But however, Superman coming in on the book, this time in the Green Lantern book with Superman on the cover, Superman is drawn really well. He's got a lot of capeage flowing behind him, which is always awesome, and he's got the longer hair, the newer look, and he looks really great. Uh, Banks does a good job at drawing the Man of Steel on the cover here. Inside the issue, there'll be ups and downs, but here on the cover, he really looks great. Page one, we get the opening splash of Mongo getting ready to pound Kyle, uh, saying, wake up Green Lantern, I want you conscious for your death. And here, Mongol's art looks really kind of off. The entire right side of his body looks far too overly muscled. In fact, it seems like there might be an extra tendon in his right leg that's just bulging off the right side that he doesn't seem to have on his left leg. It's The anatomy is a bit off. A lot of times in drawing muscular characters, they tend to overemphasize the muscles, and I think they've done it a lot here with Mongol. Pages 2 and 3, we get an awesome two-page splash of Superman flying in and just punching Mongol in the face. The only negative thing is that, obviously, the Man of Steel didn't see Alex behind Mongol, and essentially he's just crushed Alex by punching Mongol onto her. Oopsie. Page 5, panel 2, we get more scenes of Alex not thinking that Kyle is up to this. The whole doubting thing on Alex's part could be perceived as sort of her being a Debbie Downer to him. I mean, she knows Kyle, and she realizes from the past that he's been kind of a slacker, so I don't know whether to take it as genuine concern or the fact that she doesn't think that he can actually pull this off. Um, Moving on, and then on page three, Kyle sort of seems a bit self-interested in this. He doesn't seem uh, interested in taking out Mongol because he's a menace. He wants to take out Mongol because he's going to try and impress Superman. So motivation on both the characters is kind of self-interested, and... I guess that's stereotypical for 90s-type characters, that they're very, well, self-interested. They're not very giving of their time, and it'll basically be something that will, over time, have to change and modify with the character so that they can become more of a hero. Page 10, panel 2. We get a nice piece of art here with Superman pulling Mongol off of Kyle. And because Superman's in the background, all you see is the red of his cape and the red of his S-shield. And the rest of his costume is kind of in shadow and blacked out. 
it's a really dynamic image, and it really makes the S-Shield pop out, which is really cool. Then on the same page, uh, panel 4, maybe this isn't the best time for uh, personal introductions. I mean, yeah, eventually you're going to have to get to know each other, but you're in the middle of fighting a monstrous, super-powered villain. Uh, save the introductions for later. Page 11, panel 1. It's interesting... Well, I guess it's not interesting, but I guess it's expected that Superman doesn't know that the whole Green Lantern Corps isn't around. Uh, only Guy and the group of heroes from the JLA would actually know what's happened to the Green Lantern Corps. And since, I guess technically, they're not back from their little excursion on Oa yet, um, Superman may just believe that the Green Lantern Corps is still up and running. He'll probably find out pretty soon that that's not the case. Then on the same page, panel 4, we get the thing that I hear a lot of Superman fans complain about, especially in the modern era, is the red-eyed Superman. Whenever Superman is angry or whatever, they'll draw him with the red eyes, so that it looks like he's going to be using his heat vision to basically burn something. In most cases, I will agree with them, but I think here... Well, I think at this point in time, it hasn't been overused as it has in the current uh, era of comics. So here, Superman with the red eyes, I think, actually works. Probably because he's having to fight Mongol, so you got to pull out the big guns. Page 12. This was actually, um, well, kind of confusing and kind of interesting. On this page, Kyle decides to ring-construct a sandblower basically a snowblower, which picks up sand and sprays it all over Mongol. Superman, flying by, then turns around and heat-visions the sand to encase Mongol in a sort of glass cocoon. It's interesting because it's a very clever idea on Kyle's part and blowing sand on him, but then in the same panel, Kyle says, Oh, I... Well, let me read it here. He says, Using the heat to fuse the sand and glass to trap him. I could have done that had I thought of it, and that's kind of awkward, because Kyle actually did think of it. It's just Superman was flying by and realized, hey, I see this happening. Heat vision it up, melted into, melted into glass, and we've got him encased. So I don't know if this is just more evidence of Kyle doubting himself, or if it's just a mistake on the writer's part. Page 15, panel 1, we finally get confirmation that yellow no longer affects the Green Lantern, as Mongol's using his little chest beam thing to shoot at Green Lantern with a yellow beam of energy. Obviously, the only thing that can explain this would be that an entity of fear has been released from the central battery and possessed the soul of a former hero. I mean, that's the obvious explanation I would come up with. Page 17, panel 1. The way Kyle takes out, takes out Mongol is running a slam track train into him. Just thought that was humorous. And then, of course, in the second panel, you know, they've knocked Mongol out. Both Superman and Green Lantern are victorious. And, of course, Kyle has to do his victory dance. And you can kind of think of him just, you know, he's got his hands up in the air. And you can actually probably hear, we like to party, you know, run in the background because... He's just so excited. Actually, thinking about it now, that song hadn't come out yet. They'd probably, they'd probably do something like, oh, whoa, here's one. We like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. Either that or he'd go all reality bites and be dancing around a my Sharona. Page 18, panel 1. I said something about the art being a bit off, and here's one of the examples of it. Kyle looks really good in this panel, but Superman, it looks like they took a dark-haired Fabio and put him in the place of Superman. His face just looks all off. 
His chin is way too chutting, and his neck is way too long. It just looks odd. But uh, in the next panel, we get a good image of uh, Superman and Green Lantern in silhouette, and it just basically shows how cool their costumes look with their uh, emblems on the front of the thing. The white and the black on Kyle's costume just really pops, and of course, the big red S on Superman's is awesome as well. Page 19, panel 2. Superman says he's going to take uh, Mongol and lock him away where there won't be any chance of him getting free. And in this one panel, we see this sort of darkened room with this weird contraption in it. I'm wondering if this might be the Phantom Zone projector. I'm not certain if that's actually been in uh, current Superman continuity at the time, but it looks like either that or some sort of weird maybe Iron Maiden type thing. And by Iron Maiden, I mean the uh, chamber that they'd put people in and torture and encase them in there and had spikes and stuff. I don't know. It's it's just kind of weird. I've never seen this thing before, so who knows? Then, of course, in the same page, panel four, we get Alex and Kyle sort of bonding after all this. And we get an image of them holding hands. And, of course, Kyle has the gauntlets on, but... It's it's a really nice image. It's very subtle, and it shows that they're starting, their relationship's starting to get back together, and hopefully this thing will be working out. Future people know that it's probably not going that way. Page 20, we cut to the uh, government office, and boy, I really hope they paid someone to mop up all the hobo blood on the floor before this magenta skin guy came in. I mean, he could slip and fall in that, and probably get workman's comp, I guess, from it. Page 22. I find it mildly amusing that Major Force has the letters MF on his, whether it's its costume or his skin. I guess it's sort of like Captain Adam's thing, that it's actually bonded to his skin. But the fact that he has MF on there is just kind of amusing to me. The only way it could be more amusing is if on his right chest he had the letters B-A, but that's just me. But that finishes up my notes for Green Lantern. I'm going to go ahead and take a break, try and get a drink, and clear my throat a little, and then when we come back after these wonderful promos for some awesome podcasts, we're going to take a look at Guy Gardner Warrior number 22. Hi, this is Professor Allen, and when I'm not listening to an awesome podcast, like this one, I'm co-hosting an awesome podcast, The Book Guy Show. Every week, we cover book news, book reviews, comic books, audiobooks, audio dramas, and podcasts. Search for The Book Guy Show on iTunes, or come visit us at bookguys.ca. Since the day Bruce Banner was bathed in gamma rays, he has fought the creature within. The creature torments Banner. The creature is unstoppable. The creature is incredible. Now, the countdown has begun to Banner's greatest confrontation with the Hulk. And all of his internal battles have come down to one moment. One final chance to reclaim his life and be whole. And three words will change the Hulk and Banner forever. Hardy, I'm home. Bigger, smarter, greener. The Hulk is taken to new heights as writer Peter David delivers an all-new phase for the Jade Giant. And Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, is bringing it all to you. Join J. David Weider, Lee Busby, and Michael Bailey as they turn a new corner and cover the all-new, all-different Incredible Hulk. Find the Ultimate Hulk podcast experience weekly at iTunes and at IncredibleHulkHomepage.com. Pad Smash. An Incredible Hulk podcast. Experience the epic like never before. And we are back to take a look at the epic epicness of Bo Smith's Guy Gardner Warrior, number 22, which was cover dated in July 1994 and released on June 7, 1994. It had a cover price of $1.50 US, 2 bucks Canada, and 70p UK. The title was Marauders of the Naba, Chapter 1, Road of Terror. 
Writer was Bo Smith, penciler was Mitch Bird, inker Dan Davis, letter Albert Guzman, colorist Stuart Shaffitz, editor was Eddie Braganza. For some reason, the unholy offspring of Dave Mustaine and Doomsday is chasing a loincloth Guy Gardner and some Amazon princess through a dreamlight forest of thorny trees. Guy and the girl head for a portal of light, desperately trying to make their escape. But the portal is closing quickly, and Guy is doing his best to keep it open so they both can make it through. The girl says that Guy doesn't have the power he had before, and if he's caught, their adversary will never let Guy out. Guy reaches out to save the girl, but it's too late, as she's dragged away by the monster's hentai-like tentacles. The beast begins to absorb the girl, now given the name Heather, into his Freddy Krueger-like chest, all the while taunting Guy with threats of his return the next time he falls asleep. Cut to a hospital bed, where a battered, bruised, and one-eyed Guy Gardner wakes from a three-week-long coma. Hearing the commotion, Guy's uber-hot, glasses-wearing female doctor rushes to his side and plays Expositional News Network, telling Guy of the destruction of the jail embassy, as well as the other strange things going on. Guy says he needs to get out to check on Tora, but the doctor says he's still too weak and needs to rest. Leaving Guy with a copy of the Daily Planet to read, Dr. Becky. Okay. Let's Guy take in the headline of the world, of the end of the world being near, as well as letting him read the story about Buck Wargo and his search for the warrior waters. Realizing that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and that he doesn't have the ring to wield, Guy decides to take a chance on this Wargo character and his quest. This leads us to the obligatory Raiders of the Lost Ark travel by dotted line, which leads our intrepid hero to the city of El Peligro in South America. Guy asks the pilot where he can find Wargo and his team, and the pilot directs him to the local bar where they spend most of their time. Guy easily finds the bar and is the, currently hosting a Hal Needham level of brawl between the locals and Buck Wargo's crew. Thinking that he's died and gone to heaven, Guy dives in fist first making himself fast friends with Buck the Truck Wargo. There's a lone sniper in the balcony that has his rifle sighted on Buck, but before he can pull the trigger, he's offed by a strange gentleman in a fence. Time passes, and Buck and crew come out victorious over the thugs, which leads to the introduction of Guy to Buck's crew, which includes fiery Latina Esperanza Shata, computer genius and walking John Woo stereotype Joey Hong, zoologist and weapons expert Rita Muldoon, and Desmond Farr. Who can transform into a tiger man? Pausing here for a fact, Guy sits down with Buck and lays out what's going on. He needs to find a way to be a hero again. A hero with power, and he believes that the Warrior Waters will make it just that. Buck is skeptical about whether or not they will find the waters, much less if they will work. But if Guy is willing to buy the next round, they're willing to have him along. Unfortunately, their revelry is cut short by the entrance of a dinosaur, being ridden by a Nazi, claiming that the warrior waters shall only belong to the Fuhrer. Again, pausing to let that sink in. The obligatory fighting with fight and sign, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, occurs as Guy and the crew fight and whip their way against their out-of-time opponents finally taking down the dinos and the Nazis. Holding a knife to his throat, Esperanza demands that Goose-stepping goon to spill his guts about the search for the warrior waters. The Nazi plans to do just that, as he rips open his jacket to reveal a vest of dynamite, which he detonates while yelling, For the Third Reich!
There are times where I really, really wish that this was a video podcast. Not because I'm thinking that you people out there would love to stare at me, but just so you could see how huge a grin I have on my face because of reading this book. This is just so over-the-top, action-heavy, dripping with testosterone, but most importantly, fun. This is incredibly fun. It borrows from all the tropes of the pulp heroes and from 80s action films and blends it all into a joyous amalgam of awesomeness. Bo Smith has a really great idea for the character of God, turning him into this sort of Indiana Jones type adventurer character. And I really, really wish that the story would keep on in this fashion. Sadly, I know that it's going to turn into Guy Gardner, purveyor of big guns that shoot out of his arm. It is what it is. But let's go ahead and hit the notes. Uh, The cover is really wonderful. It really signifies a break from the way the character of Guy Gardner was going. Uh, After all those covers of Guy just standing there in his various ridiculous outfits from the leather jacket with the spiky gloves and then the gold armor with the big tubes coming out of the back, we finally get a new direction that is reminiscent of some of the works of you know, poster gray, it's like Drew Struzan. It looks like it could be an Indiana Jones movie poster, with Guy Gardner holding a gun out in front of him, shooting it, and the bullets coming out slowly. The uh, hot, very hot female on the side, who just happens to be carrying a machete and wearing very, very short Daisy Dukes. The mustachio, elder, sort of adventurer with the uh, giant 12-gauge shotgun slung over his shoulder, the uh, map of the strange area with a twin-engine plane flying over it, and Guy and the hot woman in the uh, Daisy Dukes riding a motorcycle shooting at a Tyrannosaurus Rex. If this cover doesn't scream awesome, I don't know what would. Page one, here we get the introduction of the character of Dementor, the uh, Dave Mustaine wannabe who will become a big thorn in Guy's side later in the issues. He is a very dynamic-looking villain, but he's also very reminiscent of Doomsday. I think it's the uh, nostril teeth that really make the character. Pages two and three, a really great two-page splash with the heroes on the left side and the villain Dementor on the right, and Dementor looks overly muscled and creepy, and he also looks like he's got Freddy Krueger faces all over his chest, a la, I think it was the fifth Nightmare on Elm Street movie? I can't remember, they kind of blur together. But uh, I'm wondering why Guy and this unnamed girl as of yet are in their 1 million BC costumes. Kind of creepy. Page 4, panel 2. Even though Guy has no idea what's going on, he feels compelled to make sure that both he and the girl, who I guess is Heather, which we'll be finding out more in later issues, need to get out of there. It just shows that even when he is completely out of his element, Guy is still doing his best to try and be heroic. Page 5. Bird and Davis do a really good job at capturing not only the attractiveness of the female form, like I've described later, because the girl, who I guess we now know as Heather, in this page is very attractive. Uh, Like I said before, got these curvy women. But Dementor here is also as creepy as all get out, with the chest of faces just popping out of there, very Nightmare on Elm Street-like. And then on the same page, we get as thing as Heather gets absorbed into Dementor's chest, we get the uh, scene fading to black, and then we hear Dementor using a line from uh, the Warriors, obviously, uh, going, Warrior, come out and play, yay. So it's a nice sort of homage to that film. Page 6, panel 3, 
Guy mentions something happened with Heather on an important night in high school. I've read ahead, and there is something that happens that kind of defines a little bit more who the character is, but we won't really get into it right now, and I'm not certain how much further on the character of Heather will play a role in the Guy Gardner story, but she is at least referenced in later comics, so she's not just a throwaway character. Page 7, panel 1. Great. Guy was in another coma. It seems a guy gets knocked into comas, like, on a weekly basis. You kind of wonder how he's actually able to function since he's been in at least, well, he was in the one after Hal rescued him from uh, the alternate dimension or whatever, and then he was kind of knocked out by Batman in the fifth issue of the Justice League book, so... Guy's not doing well with uh, brain injuries. Plus, all that time as a football player probably didn't help either. On the same page, I like in panel 2 that Guy's first thoughts aren't of how he's doing, but how he's got to go and help the Justice League and ICE. It's nice to know that Guy's main concern is for the love of his life. And again, that speaks really great of his character. Then again, on the same page, we get uh, panel 5, a uh, headline of Hazelwood in Hawaii. And I wonder if this is just a sort of uh, subtle reference to Doug Hazelwood, who was one of the artists at the time on the Superman books. And finally, on panel 6, why is it that Guy can always get the hot, blonde, bespectacled doctor-slash-nurse caring for him And I get Nurse Ratchet whenever I go to the hospital. I'm not a lucky man. Page 8, panel 1. I like the fact that Guy is reading The Daily Planet, which has the headline of The End of the World Near. I also like that the uh, story about Buck Wargo and his search for the warrior waters is written by Ron Troop, which is a nice bit of continuity of the Superman books, as Ron Troop was one of the uh, writers over in the uh, Superman books obviously. Then on page 9, panel 1, awesomeness, we've got the simple travel by dotted line and jet, as we get a map of North America and South America with a giant X in the middle of South America where Guy's plane is flying to. It's a trope, but it's a fun trope, and it's used well here. Page 10, If there was any way that someone could depict a Hal Needham movie in a comic book, this would be it. Now, for those of you who don't know who Hal Needham is, he's the director in the 70s who did a bunch of big action movies. Think of him as sort of the cut-rate Michael Bay of his time. He did movies like Smokey and the Bandit, Hooper, I think he was uh, connected with Cannonball Run. Let me check the IMDb real quick. Yeah, back in the 70s, he was the director of Smokey and the Bandit, Hooper, the villain, uh, Smokey and the Bandit 2, and perennial favorite, Megaforce. Yes, deeds not words, my friend. Deeds not words. Uh, He is a fun action director, and he's also a big stuntman as well. So this is just a ridiculous over-the-top fight scene with just dripping with testosterone, and it is completely and totally awesome. If you have this comic, take a look at it, because it is just fun, over-the-top goodness. Page 11, I love that in the middle of this knockdown, dragout brawl, Guy and Buck just decided to get friendly and chatty and decided to exchange Facebook information. That is totally out-of-the-ordinary awesome. I'm using awesome a lot in the description of this book. I need to expand my vocabulary. Page 12, panel 1. Of course, they get called out by Esperanza for being really chatty while everyone else 
is fighting. And then on the same page, panel four, we get the guy in the fez who shoots the guy who was going to shoot Buck Wargo. So there are more people in play in the story than we really understand. I mean, there's the thugs that these people are fighting in the bar, but there's also this guy in the fez. No idea who he is right in that moment, but we'll find out, I think, in subsequent issues. Pages 13 and 14, aside from Buck Wargo, who is basically Ted Nugent, shirtless and very hairy chest, wearing a uh, giant 10-gallon hat, uh, we're also introduced to his uh, sidekick female friend and the Daisy Dukes that we saw on the cover, Esperanza Shada, who's a spicy Latina, we're then introduced to Joey Hong, who is the stereotypical John Woo Asian character, but he's also a computer programmer, so he's got karate skills and smarts going there. We're also introduced to Rita Muldoon, the leggy blonde, who also happens to be a PhD and has a PhD in zoology, and she's a fitness expert. And finally, we get introduced to Desmond Farr who is a guy who can transform into a giant tiger. Yes, folks, it's getting weird, but it's getting a fun kind of weird. Page 15, Bo Smith, I think, has, much like Chuck Dixon, a great take on the character of Guy Gardner. And there's some dialogue here that I'd like to read that kind of defines who I think Guy Gardner is. Guy's talking to Buck about him needing power to help save the world, and uh, he says, As I told you, I ain't a lantern no more. In fact, I don't have any kind of powers at all. There's a lot of loose ends I gotta tie up, and I can't without some power. And Buck replies, Must be a big rope. And Guy in the next panel replies, Big ain't the word, Buck. The superhero biz is a strange one. You got a lot of Boy Scout types, some jerks, and some just border on plain psycho. I always saw myself as the blue-collar hero, the one that would block for you on third and long. But when I read about you looking for the warrior, the water of the warriors, I thought this might be. I thought maybe this could be my chance to get back into the game and even the score. So basically, Guy considers himself the working man's hero, and that's a pretty good definition of Guy. He's not Superman, who's the everyman hero. He's the hero of, well, what I guess Superman was in the Golden Age, the hero of the oppressed, of the little guy. So I'm liking this I'm liking that Bo Smith is taking on this aspect of his character, that this is how Bo Smith is defining Guy. Then of course, page sixteen, we get a Tyrannosaurus crashing into the bar, being ridden by a Nazi. All arguments you have now, my friends, are completely and wholly invalid. Then, to even up the amazingness even more, on page 17, we get Velociraptors. Not only Velociraptors, but Velociraptors with the Nazi swastika on the sides of their head. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> then pages 18 through 20 are just amping up the action as Buck jumps on the Tyrannosaurus Rex and takes his knife, jabs it in his throat, and starts pulling downward. And Buck says, Hey, Rita, Big Lizard seems to have a scratchy throat. What do you suggest? And as Buck slides down the uh, Tyrannosaurus's chest, uh, Rita says, I suggest you bail out, Buck. That T-Rex has got one nasty tonsillectomy coming. Buck replies, Yeah, and he's also starting to get a serious stomach ailment as he's reaching towards the... Uh, dinosaur's stomach. Then Rita pulls out a gun. It looks like a flare gun, and she shoots something into the the Tyrannosaur's stomach and saying, and she says, sorry, time to swallow the bitter pill, Dino. And on the next panel, we get the dinosaur exploding and Rita and Buck and everyone diving behind a table. It is just over-the-top, ridiculously fun action. Bo Smith perfect for this kind of stuff. Moving on to page 21, the only sort of wonky thing about this, and it makes sense in the book, but it doesn't make sense in general, why would the Nazi have dynamite strapped to himself 
a la sort of modern-day terrorist. I guess I understand they have to move forward with the time, and terrorists were strapping bombs to their chest, but it doesn't seem like the sort of stereotypical Nazi-type thing to do. Then finally, on page 22, we get the perfect 1940s sort of serial cliffhanger, where all your people are in this one area, the explosion goes off, and you don't know if any of them have survived or not. Perfect ending to a great, great issue. One of my favorites so far of Guy Gardner. If you guys can go and find issue um, 22 of Guy Gardner, go pick it up sheerly for the fun factor, because it is fun. But that finishes my notes on the issue. Let's go take a quick look at some of the ads they've got and see if they've got some neat stuff to sell us this time out. In the opening front cover, we get a picture of a storm with a lightning bolt coming out of it saying, Nothing, nothing can prepare you. And uh, it's saying that there's going to be a certain game released in September of 1984 for the NES, Genesis, well, Super NES, Genesis, Game Boy, and Game Gear. I'm trying to remember what game it is. I'm thinking it might be Mortal Kombat, but I think that's already come out, so I'm not really certain. It's a nice tease poster, though. Then we get a couple of back-to-back ads for movies. The first one is the Minnesota Twins have a new owner, and it's Little Big League. Sorry, Little Big League, which is the story of a young boy, I think played by Luke Edwards, who inherits the uh, Minnesota Twins, and all his trials and tribulations of trying to make that team a winning team. I don't know about baseball. Maybe maybe he did. Who knows? Then the next page is for the critically underappreciated Alec Baldwin movie, The Shadow. And it's got this sort of stylized image of uh, the cloaked figure of The Shadow with only his eyes showing and everything else is a black background. I had forgotten that the movie is directed by Russell Mulcahy, was the director of the Highlander movie. So I may have to see if this is on Netflix and check this out, because I remember initially being kind of cold on it, but listening to a bunch of other people talk about it on various podcasts, I'm kind of interested in uh, checking it out again. A few more pages in, we get Six Flags, number two in gaining. It's the uh, ad for the Six Flags theme park, and Six Flags still, you're no Walt Disney World. The next page is the American Entertainment Comics page, which is posting a lot cheaper comics, including $1, $2, $3, and $5 comics. And a lot of their stuff are 50% off. I think this is the same page we covered in last issue. The biggest thing they've got now are $40 comics, which include Dr. Mirage, number one, Freaks, Hard Case, Shadow Man, and Strangers. All books that I'm sure are continuing on right now and have a giant fan base. No, they don't. After the Nazi writing dinosaur page, we get an ad for... Well, it's hard to make out. It's a sort of barren, cracked desert-looking image with a sort of blue sky with a sort of... It looks like a little text piece coming towards you. And at the bottom of the page, it says the end of today. And it's got the DC Comics bullet logo down there. Looking at, oh, well, I guess what it is, it's for the Zero Hour book. Because if you look at the uh, very bottom of there, I guess that uh, image there is for Zero Hour. So they're promoting it, and Zero Hour is coming soon. Next page, we get the Legionnaires Annual number 1, which was a part of the Elseworlds crossover that the annuals were doing this time out. It was basically where... The annuals were doing mm, sort of off-the-wall tales of what the characters were. I think they did a Legion of Superheroes one a few issues back that was sort of Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz type. So, unfortunately, I didn't follow the Legion or the Legionnaires that much, so I have no idea how this relates to the reality of the Legionnaires or whether it's vastly and completely different. The DC house ad has a John Bogdanov Superman flying away, saying action and adventure delivered right to your door when you subscribe to DC Comics. And it's got the variety of DC Comics, ranging from a 12-month subscription for $18 or $21 for some of the books. Nice Bogdanov picture of Superman, though. 
I'm growing to like his art. It's it's a bit more stylized than the other Superman artists, but it's different and kind of fun. The DC Universe page is all about the Chicago Comic Con in 1994, and uh, they had a good number of creators, including Jim Ballant, Daryl Banks, Chris Claremont, I guess Claremont was working for DC at the time, Alan Grant, Dan Jurgens, Barry Kitson, and Val Semeckis. And plus, they also had some of the editors coming as well. as Mike Carlin, Archie Goodwin, Paul Kupperberg, Denny O'Neill, and Scott Peterson were going to be there. And it looks like they're not only pro- promoting the return of Batman from the uh, Nightfall series, but also the return of Superman and this weird guy in a red hood with a black mask and all the heroes finding him. Wonder what that's all about. In the Guy Talks Letters column, Guy basically trashes a guy named Jeff Duran and pretty much gives him the smackdown. Unfortunately, a lot of people aren't really thrilled with the fact that Guy has taken on the name of Warrior, but what are you going to do? Things have to change. The back inside cover has a Advertisement that is incredibly creepy for Bark tattoos. Bark's root beer has some tattoos on it, and for some reason they got the... It looks like the artist who draws Zippy the Pinhead to come in and draw a couple of pinheads from the back drinking Bark's root beer. And As an added bonus, the uh, back cover is like one of those mad fold-ins where you fold it in and it reads something different than the... uh, quoted text here. I think it reads butthead, but I'm not going to fold my comic. I'm just going to sort of link them together and hope that's what it is. The back outside cover, however, has the advertisement for Batman Nightfall, the uh, hardback novel written by Dennis O'Neill. Plus, oddly enough, they've got a young fan, uh, younger readers version of the uh, Batman Nightfall storyline, which kind of seems counterproductive because I thought the whole idea of the Batman turning into Azrael or Azrael turning into Batman thing was to show Batman needs to be a bit more grim and gritty. And Why would that be good for younger readers? You never know. But that does it this time for the ads. I would like to mention, again, the Green Lantern book was reprinted in a couple of trades. Uh, first of all, Green Lantern, a new Dawn trade paperback, and then Green Lantern, Emerald Twilight, New Dawn Train paperback. Again, Guy Gardner has not been reprinted at all. So, check your back issue bins. Definitely, definitely, definitely go pick this up, because it is just a fun read. But coming up next week, we're going to be dealing with a bit more heavy issues. Especially heavy in the Green Lantern book, where Major Force finally makes his introduction to Kyle and his introduction to Alex, in a way that will shake not only the character of Kyle, but the comics industry as a whole. Plus, we've got more Guy Gardner and his ridiculous over-the-top search for the Warrior Waters, which will lead him to being a basically plasma-shooting, tattooed beefcake. Look forward to that. Plus, look forward to a special guest. Someone who I think has something to say about the whole issue going on in the Green Lantern book. But that's for next Friday, so I hope you guys have a good weekend, have a great week, and we'll catch you next Friday back here at Just One of the Guys. See you then. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys, all one word, dot Libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes, 
Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next episode. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Word Up by the band Cameo. Like all the music I use on the show, this one song can be found in a myriad places on the internet. But the one place that I would suggest you go if you want to download the song would be Amazon.com. Not only because Amazon.com has all the music you would ever want, including Cameo, but it's also affiliated with the Two True Freaks website. If you go to twotruefreaks.libson.com, there's a banner at the top of the page. Click on that banner and you'll be transported to Amazon.com where you can shop for Cameo songs or Cameo bracelets. Probably the latter is better. But every time you go to twotruefreaks.libson.com and click on the Amazon.com banner at the top of the page and buy something from Amazon.com, a little bit of money will be going back to Chris and Scott, making sure that they keep their podcast on the air ready for you to listen to.